This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine that you are lying on a gurney in a doctor's office. The doctor has given you something for the pain before the procedure, but you are still awake. Imagine then that the doctor puts his fingers inside you, and when you try to scream and push him away, you realize that you are paralyzed and not able to even make a sound. This is what happened to 24-year-old Amelia in 2006. Welcome to episode 22 of True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Panilla. Today I want to play a promo from one of my favorite podcasts out there, hosted by the beautiful and talented Jamie. I'm of course talking about the podcast Murderish. But let's hear it from Jamie herself. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod, and on Facebook at Murderish Podcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. Thank you, Jamie. Don't forget to subscribe to Murderish right away. Before I get into today's case, I want to give you an extra warning. This is a case about rape, and more exactly, about rape during a procedure at a doctor's office. So if you know that this might be a trigger for you, please skip this episode. And I also have to add that I had surgery myself in the beginning of December, and I'm so, so glad that I started researching this case after my own surgery. But my surgery took place at a big hospital, and the entire team of doctors and nurses We're all women. Yay. Johanna has also helped out with a lot of the research for this case. Thank you so much, Johanna. But let's get into today's case. The Rapist Plastic Surgeon. The doctor in this case is named Carl Åke Troilius, and he's called Carl. He was born in 1954 by parents Anne-Marie and Gunnar. They both worked as teachers. He knew from a very early age that he wanted to become a surgeon. 
His friends from high school say Carl was a very vocal and extroverted person. Someone who everyone noticed and knew who he was. He had very high ambitions and wanted to be admired by others. So choosing a medical career path was, for him, not about helping people. It was all about shining and being someone others looked up to. He was accepted into medical school in 1974 with a fairly decent grade point average. Shortly thereafter, he met his future wife, Agneta. She was two years his senior and studied to become a nurse. Agneta was a petite blonde with curly hair and ice blue eyes. The couple had many things in common, and they both liked a posh lifestyle and to entertain guests. They hosted amazing dinner parties where they could impress people with their beautiful home, interior decoration, and home-cooked meals. They built quite a network of important people in the Skåne region in the early 1980s by hosting those parties. Their first child, Samuel, was born in 1983, and two years later their daughter, Alexandra, was born. Agneta was not a stay-at-home kind of mother, and Carl was always busy working in a local hospital. They often traveled abroad together without their children. Samuel and Alexandra had everything they could possibly need in terms of material things, but they did not get their parents' time and attention while growing up. Carl had, as I said, his goals set on becoming a surgeon, But it wasn't until his mid-twenties that he started getting into plastic surgery. In his final years of medical school, he went to San Diego, California for an internship with a heart surgeon. By chance, he ran into a couple of plastic surgeons in the lunchroom and struck up a conversation. Carl started asking questions about what they did, and their answers made him very interested. His internship with a heart surgeon was not going well so he decided to shift his focus to plastic surgery instead. Some may think that plastic surgery is a modern occurrence, but there is documentation that plastic surgery has been performed as far back as the year 500 before Christ by a physician called Sushiruta, also known as the father of surgery. His speciality was giving new noses to women who had theirs cut off. Back then, it was a common punishment for adultery, and Sushiruta pulled skin down from the forehead to create a new nose. Recreating noses was also common in the 16th century South Europe, as syphilis plagued the population. A rare side effect of syphilis is deformation of the nose. Although plastic surgery clearly improved the quality of life for many people, It was frowned upon for a very long time. It wasn't until the end of the 19th century that it became respected and its own discipline of medicine. Up until the 1950s, plastic surgery was mostly used on soldiers who had suffered war injuries. But after World War II ended, a lot of plastic surgeons lost most of their target group, so they turned to cosmetic surgery instead. Ads saying, for example, end of ugliness, or new nose in 40 minutes, 
started showing up in American women's magazines post-war. Sweden, who has not been in war since the peace treaty of 1808, did not have the same challenges with war injuries. And it wasn't until 1991 that the first private practice of plastic surgery opened here. Up until then, only people with a medical reason could have plastic surgery. Karl quickly jumped on the bandwagon and opened his own practice in Malmö in the southern parts of Sweden in 1992. Initially, only very wealthy women had surgery. But as time went by and more clinics opened up to the public, it became more common among the middle class. Agneta, who had moved on from nursing and was working as a medical researcher focusing on the human skin, partnered up with her husband, and together they put plastic surgery on the map for people in the south of Sweden. The clinic was thriving, and the couple made a lot of money right from the start. When their son, Samuel, started high school in 1999, his family was almost like celebrity in the Skåne area. In the spring of 2003, Carl's celebrity status had reached the media industry in Stockholm, and a TV production company who were looking for a plastic surgeon to star in their upcoming show about a beauty clinic. It eventually led to eight episodes of a show called The Clinic, airing on Channel 5 in Sweden, Denmark and Norway. The show was immediately a huge success, and Carl was finally at the level of fame and admiration that he had been longing for. He loved to be the star of his own TV show, and his clinic was more profitable than it had ever been before. Life was good for Carl, for sure. But there were rumors going around about Agneta and Carl. They did have an open marriage, and it was widely known that Agneta and Carl regularly frequented a swingers club in Malmö. Carl would also often brag to his friends about how many naked women he laid eyes on at work. But as a professional, he was a respected surgeon with a great reputation, and he was always open to try new methods or tools to improve his business. The IPL machine was one of those modern things he tried. Carl was the first surgeon in Sweden to purchase this machine for permanent removal of body hair, used for example on the bikini line or upper lip. It quickly became one of the most popular treatments on the clinic. Let's go back a little bit in time now and introduce Amelia. Carl and Agneta's oldest son, Samuel, met Amelia in high school in 2001, and they were a couple for three years. When they broke up, Amelia decided to pack up and move to Monaco, in the south of Europe. The two stayed friends after the breakup, though, and even her parents stayed in touch with his parents, Agneta and Carl. Amelia's father helped the Truilius family with construction work, since he owned his own construction company, and Amelia's mother had some surgeries done at Carl and Agneta's clinic. Amelia was now 23, and she lived in Monaco, working as a personal trainer and health consultant. She was very much into training and had lost some weight and realized that her breasts also got smaller. She thought about doing something about it, 
And she had also heard about the new amazing hair removal machine that Carl used. Since she was spending a lot of time at the beaches of southern France, she figured that a permanent treatment of her bikini line would be nice. She went to Sweden to have a consultation with Carl. And this might seem weird that Amelia turned to her ex-boyfriend's father for a consultation. But plastic surgery was still very expensive, and she thought she could get a good deal with Carl, she later explains. And the two families were still close, even though she was no longer seeing the son, Samuel. During the consultation, Carl agreed that she should do her breasts, as was one of the reasons she came there in the first place. But he also suggested that uh, she should have a nose job and also some implants in her cheek, because that would make her nose look smaller in profile. He also suggested that she should lift her eyelids a bit and also do the IPL treatment to remove hair from her bikini line. When her former school friends heard about all the things that she was planning to do, they didn't understand why. Amelia was a very beautiful young woman, and why fix something that wasn't broken? The friends thought she had lost it completely and was trying to be someone she wasn't. They thought all this came from her living in Monaco, a place for the rich and beautiful. But this was far from the truth. Amelia was down to earth and very health-oriented. She didn't even drink alcohol. The surgery was scheduled for a Saturday in January of 2007, and Amelia was going to get the IPL treatment before she went under the knife. A nurse met up with her in the reception and led her to a locker room where she could take off her clothes. She explained to Amelia that the clinic was in fact closed, but they had opened it up for her sake that day. The nurse gave her a white bathrobe and white slippers, and she was taken to a room further down the hall to wait for Carl. After about an hour he showed up and gave her a hug before they walked to the IPL room on the second floor together. He told her to take off her panties and her bathrobe and lay down on the examining table. Amelia was feeling very uncomfortable but told herself that this was his job and he probably looked at a thousand naked women every year. He brought out a razor and shaved her bikini line before the procedure. He asked her if she also wanted him to do the IPL treatment on the rest of her vagina, but she said no, the bikini line was enough. He added a gel to the area and started the IPL machine. The machine makes a loud noise every time the doctor pushes a button. It hurt a bit, but not as much as she thought it would. She was more uneasy about the situation. She was lying there naked with her legs spread apart and Carl's head close to her private parts. He was holding one of his hands on her inner thigh and suddenly she feels the hand move up towards her vagina. And before she could react, she feels his fingers inside of her. Amelia flinched from the unexpected touch, and Carl quickly removed his fingers and continued with the IPL treatment like nothing had happened. Amelia froze and didn't move a muscle. She couldn't believe what had just happened. A couple of minutes later, he was finished with the treatment and took her to the operating room where the breast surgery was performed. 
At that moment, Amelia didn't know that she had reacted to this threatening situation with something called tonic immobility. Tonic immobility, or TI, describes a state of involuntary paralysis in which individuals cannot move or in many cases even speak. In animals, this reaction is considered an evolutionary adaptive defense to an attack by a predator when other forms of defense are not possible. A study shows that 70% of rape victims experienced at least significant tonic immobility and 48% met the criteria for extreme tonic immobility during the rape. The study also showed that women who were lying down more often end up with tonic immobility. This is probably because the other forms of response to fear, fight or flight, seems to be much more difficult when being in a horizontal position. People who experience tonic immobility might seem to be accepting what is happening to them, and they are often questioned afterwards with concerns like, Why didn't you scream? Or why didn't you just run away? But it is a normal biological response to a threatening situation. And it was exactly what happened to Amelia. She froze. Many rape victims who experience tonic immobility suffers from strong feelings of guilt afterwards. Being a victim of a sexual abuse is a complicated and very emotional situation. Many women feel like they did something wrong and put the blame on themselves. Especially if the perpetrator is someone they know and the consequences of them pressing charges are high. That is why Amelia told herself afterwards that Carl must just have made a mistake and that she was probably just overreacting. Six months later, Amelia went back to the clinic for some adjustments to the previous surgery. She wasn't satisfied because her left breast was tilted a bit and she wanted to get it fixed. When meeting with Carl before the breast surgery, he suggested that they should do a new IPL treatment of her bikini line. This treatment would be free of charge, she said. The fact that it takes about four to six treatments with the IPL machine before the hair is gone permanently made her accept this offer even though she had the scary experience from last time in the back of her head. She told herself again and again that nothing probably happened. Amelia was greeted by the same nurse as the last time she was there. She was taken to an examination room and the nurse put an IV in her arm in preparation for the surgery. Then she was given a white bathrobe and slippers, just like the last time. Carl came in and gave her a hug and they walked to the IPL room together. As they entered the room, Amelia started becoming very anxious. It was like her subconscious remembered everything that she had been trying so hard to forget. This time Amelia was better prepared though. She had already shaved her bikini line because she didn't want Carl to be doing that again. She tried to shake off the feeling of unease that kept creeping up on her, and right before he was about to start the treatment, he walked towards her with a needle in his hand. She asked him what it was, and he said, it's for the pain, and then he inserted the fluid into her IV line. What pain, she remembers thinking. 
the IPL treatment wasn't painful at all. But after Carl injected the substance into her arm, Amelia instantly felt her body disappearing. It was like it melted away from under her. Her brain was still functioning, registering every detail of what was going on. But since she was on her back, she could only see the ceiling and not what Carl was doing. Amelia tried to tilt her head to the right to get a glimpse of the room, but her neck wouldn't respond to her will. And at that moment, she felt his fingers in her vagina. Unlike last time, when she flinched away from him, she couldn't move at all. But this time, she didn't suffer from involuntary tonic immobility. She was in fact paralyzed by a drug that he had injected into her veins. And she couldn't move at all, let alone scream. She felt his fingers poking around inside of her while she was staring at the white towels in the ceiling. After a couple of minutes, he pulled his fingers out. She sighed of relief and thought to herself, thank God this nightmare is over now. And just as she had finished that thought, he puts his penis in her. He was having sex with her and she couldn't even scream. Nonetheless, get out of there. He thrusted three or four times, and then he was done. After this, he walked up to her face and asked her how she was feeling. She could hear that his breathing was short, and she saw that his face was red from excitement. He then put his mouth close to hers and kissed her multiple times on the lips. Carl then pulled her up to a sitting position, but Amelia couldn't hold her upper body up. So he sat down next to her and held her for about 10 minutes. She then started to feel like her muscles were starting to function again. She doesn't remember how she got her panties back on or the bathrobe. Her thoughts were slow and she couldn't quite remember every detail of what had just happened. Carl led her back to her room and put her to bed. She instantly fell asleep. She woke up to the ringtone of her mothers, who were going to pick her up from the clinic and take her home. Since Amelia lived in Monaco and was only home for this surgery, she stayed with her parents instead of in a hotel. Her mother could see that the operation had taken a toll on her daughter. She looked very pale and was very quiet. She didn't say much at all that night. But the next morning... As soon as her brother and father had left the house, she started talking to her mother. She told her everything, from the very first time he touched her a few months back, when she thought it might have been a mistake, to this time, being drugged and raped. Amelia's mother was shocked and not really sure what to do. She called a friend who also was a nurse that had worked at the clinic a few years back, but now was employed elsewhere. 
The friend told her that this is very serious and that she should immediately contact the police. Amelia's mom takes her to the police station and tells them what happened the day before and also what had happened in January. It was May 5th and two police officers were sent to pick up Carl for questioning. He looked very surprised when they told him why he had come with them to the police station. But by the time they got there, he was about to have an anxiety attack. When they got into the interrogation room, he said to the police that he didn't feel well and asked if they could do this some other time. Oddly enough, they told him yes, and he came back the next day to be questioned. This was how highly regarded he was in the community. When he said he needed more time to prepare for the interrogation, he got more time. The day after, he came in voluntarily and talked to the police officer, Sven Ove. Carl told him about how Amelia had wanted pain medication because she said the procedure had been so painful last time, and that he of course gave her something for the pain. But raping her was just an absurd accusation. He started explaining how maybe Amelia in her state of being medicated with pain medicine must have fantasized about having sex with him and mistakenly thought that they had sex when he was doing the IPL treatment so close to her private parts. He went on about how this was a false accusation and that he couldn't believe that Amelia would ever do such a thing given the fact that the families were so friendly with each other. Carl was going on and on how she might have understood something during the treatment. That was the only explanation he could find to this accusation. He said that he should probably have had a nurse or something with him in the room, instead of being alone with a naked woman, and then being accused of rape. After Amelia had told the police about the rape, they sent her to the hospital in Malmö where she could be examined. Earlier that year, the Malmö hospital had been given new instruction and rape kits by NFC, the Swedish National Forensic Center. The first rape kits issued to all hospitals by the NFC was in 1995, when DNA became a big thing in criminology. But when this happened in 2007, the kit was updated with new instructions on how to handle DNA samples. The purpose was to improve testing and make more DNA results be able to be used as proof in a court of law. It was Dr. Kim Ansberg who examined and took DNA samples from Amelia that day when she came to the hospital on May 4, 2007. The results came back a while later. And just like Amelia had told the police, the DNA test showed signs of Carl's semen inside her vagina. Carl, of course, tried to explain why his semen was inside of her. And his explanation is so absurd. He says that he masturbated before the surgery, and that he sometimes had an extra involuntary ejaculation after having masturbated. This is what happened this day, and he scratched his stomach during the IPL treatment and must have gotten semen on his finger, and then he transferred that to her vagina. 
The problem with this so-called explanation is that semen was found very deep inside of her. When a doctor administers a rape kit, there are swabs taken on multiple places in and around the vagina. So his explanation doesn't hold any truth. When it was time for the trial, there was no question whether Carl was guilty or not. Tests also showed that the reason that Amelia had felt paralyzed during the rape was that he injected her with propofol, also marketed as Deprivan. It's a short-acting medication that results in a decreased level of consciousness and often also lack of memory afterwards. Maximum effect is reached about two minutes after it's been injected and the effect lasts about 5 to 10 minutes. Common side effects include an irregular heart rate, low blood pressure, burning sensation at the site of injection, and the stopping of breathing. It was discovered in 1977 and approved for use in the United States in 1989. The Missouri Supreme Court decided to allow the use of propofol to execute prisoners condemned to death. However, the first execution by administration of a lethal dose of propofol was halted on October 11, 2013, by Governor Jay Nixon following threats from the European Union to limit the drug's export if it were used for that purpose. Attention to the risks of propofol use increased in August 2009 due to the Los Angeles County coroner's conclusion that music icon Michael Jackson died from a mixture of propofol and the benzodiazepine drugs loriazepam, midazolam and diazepam on June 25, 2009. According to a July 22, 2009 search warrant affidavit unsealed by the District Court of Harris County, Texas, Jackson's personal physician, Conrad Murray, administered 25 milligrams of propofol, diluted with lidocaine shortly before Jackson's death. But back to Carl and Amelia now. He says that she asked for something against the pain and she says she didn't. He claims that they talked all the way through the IPL treatment, and that she spanked him on his behind and told him to be careful with the procedure. She, on the other hand, says that she was paralyzed. She couldn't even tilt her head, and she was not able to speak. When the interrogator asks him why he chose to use propofol instead of some other pain medicine, he says that it's the best thing to use. And without being asked about it, he goes on to explain to the interrogator how propofol can give someone sexual fantasies. Talk about trying to explain away what happened. And when Carl's colleague is questioned, he cannot believe what he's hearing. To him, it's totally irresponsible to use propofol in a room that lacks breathing support machines, alarms, and constant focus on the patient. Normally, there's always a nurse or a doctor whose only purpose is to watch the patient's breathing and vital signs. This colleague, Fritjof, 
goes on to tell the police how he and Carl had a very different outlook on the drugs that should be used. Carl wanted to give the patients a drug called Dormicum before surgery. You might have heard of this drug, but under another name, Rohypnol, aka the date rape drug. Fritjof says that Carl wanted him to give this drug to the patients in an early stage, before the photography session, before surgery. Fritjof said no to this because he didn't see any reason at all to do that. Fritjof had, during all the years he had worked close to Carl, had suspicions that something shady was going on in the photography room and also in the laser room, but he had nothing concrete to base this on. So he never acted. But he said that it was only young and beautiful women who were there alone with Carl for long sessions. Fritjof also says that he doesn't understand the reason that Carl used propofol to reduce pain during a procedure. Propofol is used before sedation and has a way of only making pain feel more intense to the patient. So the reason for using this is very unclear to Fritjof. When the interrogator asks him why he thinks that Carl used propofol on Amelia that day, his answer comes quickly. I think he used it to make sure she didn't remember anything afterwards. When the case got to court, Carl was charged with aggravated rape and sentenced to four years in prison on September 10th, 2007, and his medical license was also revoked. Carl's closest family, including his wife and two children, Amelia's ex-boyfriend by the way, were present during the whole trial. They were behaving very inappropriately, whispering looking condescendingly at Amelia, rooting and cheering for Carl when he was testifying. When it was Amelia's turn to take the stand, her lawyer asked the judge to remove the family from the courtroom to give her some space. Even if Amelia chose to tell her mother about what had happened, she was very reluctant towards actually pressing charges against him. After all, she knew this could possibly ruin his life and their families had been friends for so long. Research has shown that about 80% of sexual crimes are never reported to the police. Tons of women every day never report their perpetrator to the police. And there are different reasons for this. Most of the time there aren't enough proof to take the case to court. In Sweden, only about 10-15% to 15 of all reports of rape are prosecuted. Often the victim and the perpetrator have two different versions of whether there was consent or not. And without solid proof, it's difficult to get a conviction. Another reason why women don't press charges is secondary victimization. Secondary victimization relates to further victimization following on from the original victimization. For example, victim blaming, treating victims with skepticism, 
inappropriate post-assault behavior or language by medical personnel or other organization with which the victim has contact further exacerbates the victim's suffering. Rape is especially stigmatizing in cultures with strong customs and taboos regarding sex and sexuality. For example, a rape victim may be viewed by society as being damaged. Victims in these cultures may suffer isolation, be disowned by friends and family, be prohibited from marrying, or be divorced if already married. Another reason why sexual violence against women is so easy to get away with is the rape culture in society, which we all are a part of. I really hope that the recent Me Too movement in many Western countries had helped shed more light on this problem. Carl is probably one of those men who doesn't understand what all the Me Too fuss is all about. He was known to have commented to his friends about one of his patient's body parts. He said, and this is a quote, so excuse the language. I made her breast so perfect, I just wanted to fuck them right there and then. But now back to the time after the sentencing. Carl, of course, appealed the conviction and at the same time fired his male lawyer and instead hired a female lawyer to try to win more sympathy in court. Shortly before the new trial, he asked to meet with the police again, because he had some new evidence and he needed to present it to them. This time, he started to talk about the night before the procedure. When Amelia came to the clinic for the consultation before the breast surgery, he tells the interrogator how he examined Amelia's breasts, felt how the implants were placed, and also tried how her sensation was in the nipple area. This is a standard procedure before this type of correcting surgery. But when he did this, he says that Amelia put her arms around his neck and started kissing him. He says he was surprised by this, but still he kissed back. They then continued by having oral sex and then penetrating sex. When they were done, he handed her some paper towels and asked her if she had noticed any difference on her pubic hair since the last IPL treatment. She said no, and then he offered her to do an extra treatment for free the next day. He says then that Amelia asked if they couldn't do that treatment right there and then instead of waiting till the next day. Carl answered her that he wanted to do the IPL with a higher energy to get a better result and that this might hurt more, so he wanted to do it right before the surgery so that she could get something for the pain. He goes on to say that he didn't say anything about this before because he was afraid to lose his wife and that a man cannot resist if a beautiful woman wants to have sex with him. It lays in the man's nature, he says. The interrogator then asks him why he thinks she pressed charges against him if she was so fond of him that she wanted to sleep with him that night. Carl answers that he had given this a lot of thought, and he had come to the following conclusions. One reason could be that she was in love with him, and that she got upset when he didn't have the same feelings for her. 
Or she could have been upset that he didn't perform her breast surgery for free. But he also presented a third possible reason, that he himself thought was the most plausible one. That reason was that Amelia had started to work with his worst competition, Jan Jernbeck, who owned the huge plastic surgery clinic, Akademikliniken, in Stockholm. Amelia's and Jan's plan should have been to get Karl's clinic closed and in that way get rid of the competition. He said that Amelia had planned everything from the seduction of him the night before the surgery to the asking for heavy drugs on the day of the IPL treatment. All this to stage that a rape took place. He also questions her actions after the alleged rape, that she agreed to do the breast surgery about three hours after she had been raped. Who does that, he asks. But as we all know, people react differently to situations. She might have been still in shock and also affected by the drugs. A couple of months after the trial, a very weird story unraveled. As if this story wasn't twisted enough, a woman contacted a reporter at the Swedish tabloid Aftonbladet and wanted to give information about Karl and Amelia. She said that she had proof of that Karl was innocent and that Amelia was a sex worker in Monaco. It turns out that Karl had hired a private detective to take pictures of Amelia. This detective was also supposed to invite her to dinner and see if she would have sex with him. That would prove that Amelia was easy and that would make Karl's story more believable. This woman also showed the reporter printouts of Google searches of Amelia's full name. The search result showed porn sites, but the police had already found them and had deemed them to be fake. Nothing substantial came out of this meeting with the reporter, but it later turned out that the woman who contacted the paper was Catherine Berger-Galley, a French fellow plastic surgeon who was friends with Carl. Carl had hired her and also some other people in Monaco to follow Amelia around and try to prove that she was leading a promiscuous life down there. Amelia was also approached by a man who in a threatening manner asked her to take back her accusations against Carl. This man was a longtime friend of Carl's. The man that followed her under a long period was a man in his 30s. He took pictures of her and finally asked her out to dinner, which she turned down. But the man kept on stalking her and finally she contacted the police about him. When questioned by the police, the man said that he had been asked to follow her by a French plastic surgeon he knew, and that he should try to get information on what kind of life she led in Monaco, who she was seeing, what she was wearing, and so on. Part of his mission was also to invite her to dinner and try to have sex with her, to kind of prove that she was easy. This came to the Swedish police knowledge after they were contacted by Interpol, the International Criminal Police, who told them about the stalking down in Monaco. The man arrested for the stalking told the police that this was initiated by the French female plastic surgeon 
who asked him to do this to help her Swedish rape-accused friend. But in the new trial, the sentence was the same. Four years in prison, and he should also pay damages to Amelia in the amount of 180,000 Swedish kronor. That is almost 20,000 US dollars. Carl was brought to a prison for sex offenders, called Skogome. While serving his time, he underwent a treatment called Rose, short for Relation och Samlevnad, that translates to living together and maintaining healthy relationships. The Rose treatment was introduced in Swedish prisons about 15 years ago by psychologist Elisabeth Kvarnmark. Rose consists of 50 sessions of group therapy twice a week and individual therapy with a psychologist. That number of sessions vary from person to person. Rose has six themes. One of them is cognitive distortion. That is a fancier word for sexual offenders who tell themselves that the crime wasn't that serious, that the woman asked for it. When in Rose therapy, you also learn how to maintain a healthy, equal relationship with another person. Empathy is also an important theme in this therapy. Agneta, Carl's wife and life companion, was in the courtroom when he was sentenced. She asked to have a letter read out to the audience. The letter goes like this. My beloved Carl, we are, mostly you, going through a rough period right now. But you will get through this. I know it. You will come out of this feeling much better than before, and you will be able to do amazing things for others and yourself. Yes, I still love you, and we've had an amazing life together. We have two wonderful children together. But because of what I just found out, our paths must now take different routes. I will no longer be your wife, but I will always be there for you. My love for you is eternal. I am in a very vulnerable state right now. Perhaps we can meet again in a couple of years and find love together and remarry. You are a fantastic, intelligent and competent man with many talents. What happened to you is unfair. I don't judge you. Yours truly, Agneta. The reason for her to have this letter read out loud in court is thought to be a public statement that she leaves him. Her life was of course highly affected by all this as well. There are other accusations that have come up during this procedure. Eleven women came forward after the rape accusations came out in the media. But even though some of them led to an investigation, none of them led to a conviction. But I still feel it's worth mentioning. There was one woman, we can call her Lisa, who went to the clinic to get a nose job. After the surgery, she felt really sick to her stomach and in a lot of pain. 
and the surgery had taken much longer than it was planned to take. When she asked the nurse about this, the nurse said that Carl had been extra careful and that he really wanted her nose to be perfect. He even said during the surgery that he needed to be able to concentrate and asked everyone to leave the room for 15 minutes. When Lisa went to the bathroom for the first time after the surgery, she noticed something sticky in her underwear, and she was confused about it. But she just brushed it off as nothing. But when the accusations against Carl became public, she started thinking about it again. She has no way of knowing if he assaulted her that day. But the possibility is definitely there. Another example is one of the nurses who worked at the clinic and decided to get breast implants. And when alone in a room before surgery and being completely naked in front of Carl, he all of a sudden grabbed her between her legs and asked if she wanted him to fix her vagina as well. She jerked back and said no. Then he leaned forward and kissed one of her breasts and said, Okay, but I'm going to fix these two. Another story comes from yet another employee. This event happened on the trip they took, and there were a lot of people in the office attending. After dinner one night, they decided to get into a jacuzzi together. In the jacuzzi, Jenny was sitting opposite from Carl, when he all of a sudden put his foot between her legs. She froze, and before she knew what was happening... He jerked his big toe inside her. And then there was another patient, Ulrika, who came to the clinic on a Saturday to get her stitches removed after a breast surgery. She was alone with Carl in an examination room, and he injected her with something. Before she could ask what it was, she felt herself doze off. When she woke up, she didn't know how much time had passed. But the stitches were still there. Carl was walking around in the room and he gave her some explanation to why the stitches were still there. But she doesn't remember what he said. When she later gets up to leave, she can feel that she has a severe pain in her butt area. She had her period that day. And when she gets home, she finds that her tampon had been removed. And another patient, Gabriella was at the clinic to have reconstructive surgery on her vagina after a really hard childbirth. Before the surgery, Carl walks into her room and says hi, and without asking or saying anything, he lifts up the blanket and puts his fingers inside her vagina and starts moving them around. She asks him what he's doing, and he answers that he's trying to give her an orgasm, because he wants to feel how the tissue in her vagina reacts to an orgasm. She tells him to stop and manages to sit up and is on her way to get off of the bed. He then grabs her from behind with a firm grip on her stomach and then he puts his finger inside her again, this time from behind. She says no again and tries to get out of his grip. He gives up and let her go. And then he says in a neutral voice, as if the last minute never happened, you are ready for surgery now.
After serving two-thirds of his sentence, Carl was a free man in 2010. His company had been sold and he left Sweden and first moved to Dubai and later to France with Catherine Berger-Gallet. He had applied multiple times to get his medical license back, but so far, no luck. It is said that he works with Catherine in her clinic and serves as her assistant. But on the French clinic homepage, he is presented as an experienced plastic surgeon. When Swedish authorities found out about this, they contacted France to make sure that they were aware of that he no longer holds a medical license. But it's said that he is no longer performing any surgeries, but only assisting coaching and guiding other doctors. He has also changed his name from Carl Truilius to Carl Esbjörnsson, his mother's maiden name. So if you ever plan to have plastic surgery done in France, watch out for this man. Amelia's real name is not known to the public, and little is known about her whereabouts and life now. I hope she has been able to put this whole ordeal behind her and that she's happy with whatever she's doing. Most of the content of this episode comes from the book Plastikkirurgen by Leone Milton. And that book is unfortunately only available in Swedish. But I highly recommend all my Swedish listeners to read it or listen to it. That's it for episode 22 of True Crime Sweden. Thank you so much for listening. And before we get into today's fun fact about Sweden, I want to thank the following people who took the time to leave me a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks to, from the US, C. Chumain, Mary France Art, It's Me, Jennifer Lynn B., Iago's Ant, and I want to read a little of what's written by Thiago from Mexico. Hola, awesome podcast. Kind of like Case File, but with a more conversational script. Oh my god, I'm just being compared with Case File. That makes me so happy because that's my favorite show. And, Thiago, you asked for a shout out, so here it is. Hi, Thiago. Thanks for listening and thanks for taking the time to review the podcast. Also, thank you to Lydia, Violetta, Olive Lulu and Noma's Mama, all from the US. And from Finland, thank you to Ruska Retki and Ada from Finland. From Canada, thanks to Joel's 19 From Denmark, thanks to Kamgro. From Norway, thanks to Black Scorpio 79 From Australia, thanks to Al Down South, Ilbax, Claire Isabel. I also want to thank the following new patrons. Kate M, Maggie James, Amy R and Robert D. Thank you so much for your support. That means a lot to me. If you want to support me on Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Sweden. It's so amazing that people all over the world are listening and supporting the podcast. That makes me so happy. Thank you all. And some of you might follow the podcast on social media. You can find me as True Crime Sweden on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. 
And on my Instagram account, I found this amazing singer that I would like to tell you about. She is on Spotify, Apple Music, and on her own site. Just search for Melissa Plett. That's M-E-L-I-S-S-A-P-L-E-T-T. I love her voice, and her songs make me think of my time in the U.S. My favorite song of hers is called Stay. So check her out, Melissa Plett. That's enough of that, and let's get over to today's fun fact about Sweden. Today I'm going to talk about how we celebrate Christmas in Sweden. Christmas is one of the largest family holidays in Sweden, so there's a lot of traveling taking place. If you want to go by train, you have to make your reservations months in advance. And if you plan to drive, make sure you're not in a hurry. It's usually very crowded on the roads before and after Christmas. If you work an office job like I do, you have the 24th, 25th and 26th off from work. And this year, that's perfect since the 24th is on a Monday. That means five days off from work without having to use your vacation days. And what is different here from a lot of other countries is that we celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve on the 24th of December. A lot of Swedes wait until the evening of the 23rd to take in and decorate the Christmas tree. But more and more people do it before this nowadays. The night of the 23rd is called Uppesittarkväll, which translates to be up late night. And I think it comes from the fact that everyone still has a lot to do the day before Christmas. Fixing some of the food, wrapping the last gifts, and so on. We eat obscene amounts of gingerbread cookies, pepparkakor, during December. It's said that you get nice if you eat those. And that's always a good excuse to have another one. On Christmas morning, we eat rice pudding with cinnamon and sugar and milk. How the first part of the day is spent is different in all families. Some go to a grandmother or something, or split their day between two families. But at 3 p.m., Sweden goes silent, and everyone sits in front of the TV to watch Donald Duck, or Kalanka, as he's called here in Sweden. It's short Disney stories, and this was a highlight when I was a kid, and we were not used to watch cartoons at all. Today's kids are not so impressed by this when they can watch cartoons all day if they want. But it's still a tradition to have this one-hour show running in the background. In my family, we always have a glass of glögg. That's mulled wine, warm red wine with spices. And you put raisins and almonds in it. And of course, some gingerbread cookies on the side when we watch the show. After Donald Duck... It's in some families' time to start opening gifts, and in some families' time to eat. In my family, we always eat first and open gifts later. The food is about the same as on Easter and Midsummer. We obviously don't have a lot of fantasy when it comes to holiday food in this country. It's a smorgasbord of different things, a buffet, that usually is divided into three parts. First, there is the different types of pickled herring, cured salmon, potatoes, and eggs cut in half with different toppings on them. 
Part 2 contains of julskinka. That's a large Christmas ham that had a, has a crust of mustard and breadcrumbs on it. There's also meatballs, prince sausages. That's sausages that are cut in the end so that it looks like a small crown. There's also pork ribs and my personal favorite, Jansson's frestelse or Jansson's temptation. That is kind of a potato gratin with anchovy fish in it. It doesn't sound so good, but it's delicious. And for the third part, there's dessert. A lot of Christmas candy, fudge, and so on. And also the ris alla malta, which is cold rice pudding mixed with whipped cream and served with a warm sauce. In my family, we have a plum sauce. But I know a lot of people prefer warm sauce made out of oranges. And in the ris alla malta, you put an almond. And the person who gets the almond gets the almond gift. Some family do the almond thing in the rice pudding, but we do it in the ris alla malta. After dinner, it's time for gifts. This, I guess, is the same in most families. Everyone unwrapping all their things, and it's chaos. Or if there's a Santa available, this is where he comes in. In my family, we have a tradition that my grandpa started. We put a number on each gift, starting from one and ending with how many gifts there are underneath the Christmas tree. And then we make small pieces of paper with the numbers from one and up. We fold the little papers and put them in a jar. And usually the youngest person gets to take one piece of paper and read the number on it. Then everyone is supposed to try to find, for example, number 34 by crawling around on the floor. And when it's found, you read the tag on it that says who it's for and who it's from. And that person gets to open the gift. I mean the person that it's to. And when he or she has done that, we take another number. It takes forever, but it's kind of fun because everyone gets to see what everyone gets and who's it from and so on. So now you know a little bit more about how things work here in Sweden during Christmas. And if you want to say Merry Christmas to a Swede, you should say God jul. So I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays. Or god jul. Until next time, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Hej då.